have to be smart about it to look at your after repair value and what your repair costs are going to be and how long it's going to take to flip or if that's what you're planning on doing. Absolutely. One of the things that I say is there's not one single way to become wealthy in real estate. As a loyal best ever listener, you know that it's important that we as entrepreneurs focus on managing our time effectively, which is why we're always looking for ways to automate the basic duties of our business so that we can focus more time on our money-making activities. That's why I want to introduce you to Rentler.com. At Rentler, landlords and property managers can perform all their duties in one place. Rentler offers tools that allow you to automate tasks like listing a unit for rent, finding and screening tenants, collecting rent, and managing the maintenance requests. And even better, these tools are offered at zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever to get started today. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, Sarah Larby. How you doing, Sarah? I'm amazing. How are you? I'm amazing, and I'm glad that you're amazing. Nice to have you on the show. A little bit about Sarah. She, by her early 30s, has a seven-home portfolio. She's the host of the podcast, Where Should I Invest? And she is based in Toronto. So with that being said, Sarah, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, absolutely. So not that long ago, I literally had nothing to my name. I was finishing school. I had zero dollars living at home and met my boyfriend and it was about $15,000 in debt. So (laughs) I remember going to the bank and this wasn't even that long ago, maybe like six or seven years ago now. And they were asking us, what are your assets and what are your liabilities? And I had been working for a few years by then and really realized I had nothing to really show for any of the hard work that I've been doing. So went home literally that night and started Googling how am I going to get rich one day and how to create assets. And real estate just kept coming up and up and up and up. And I said, this seems like it's easiest of the options that there were Mm -hmm. available. Stocks you can't really control. Business, you've got to be pretty savvy and takes a lot of time. And I said, well, you know, it seems like A lot of millionaires are created through real estate investing. So how do I start? And for the first couple years, it was trying to convince my spouse. And I don't know if any of your listeners are in the situation of real estate being a good idea. And he just didn't want anything to do with it for a a good amount of time because it was the, what happens if our tenants are horrible and we've got to go to the landlord tenant board and what happens if they trash our property. He's already got like a pretty full-time job. He didn't want to deal with all that stuff. So we ended up actually finding a home for his sister. She was our first tenant. Now they say don't rent a family, but in this case, it just seemed like the obvious next choice to get in. And she's still there to this day, but it allowed us to get into the market. And then since then, we've bought one or two houses a year. And so far right now, we've got seven, possibly eight. I'm waiting on a confirmation for one actually tonight. (laughs) Well, fingers crossed for you. To buy that first property where your sister-in-law moved in, what conversation took place with your spouse that allowed you to really convince him that, hey, let's do this thing. I've been talking about it for way too long and now we got to make it happen. Yeah, I think it's just about objection handling and just figuring out what all the objections are. And in this case, it wasn't, oh, whatever the objection is, sometimes people don't have money or financing, et cetera. And 
we really did scrape our money together to be able to do something or to have some money to be able to at some point do something with it. And just really understanding what the objection was and being able to say, well, you know, worst case scenario, we know her enough. Let's do it with her. And it was more of a probably back and forth debate for a couple of years, but finally, you know, he's smart and caved in. <laughs> it worked out well. Thank goodness. He's probably saying, thank goodness I did cave in. So it sounded like most of the objections centered around a bad tenant. That's basically what I heard. So once you had the sister-in-law to move in there, then that helped remedy that, it sounds like. It did. However, what I had to do is strategically figure out who our next tenants were moving forward. So like, for example, the next year, we tried to scrape our money together and buy our second property and didn't want to have another two-year debate. So we ended up actually finding a tenant first, which I ended up meeting her on Kijiji, with it, which is the Canadian version of Craigslist, and talked to her for about three months, figured out what her budget was, what she wanted, what we wanted, made sure that it matched, and that's actually how we found our second tenant. And then since then, we've done it differently as well. So we usually actually find our tenants prior to closing on the property. So house number three, as an example, I started putting some feelers out on Craigslist and one of the tenants needed to move somewhere because their landlord was selling a house and she was asked to leave within 60 days, et cetera. So we ended up Mm -hmm. actually buying that house because we had that relationship. I was able to talk to her about putting her back to market rent and then she's still there as well. So we've really been able to not have those issues with tenants. Of course, there's tons and tons of screening that you need to do, but you also get tenants that I think are so much more appreciative when you're able to work with them and you find a house obviously for yourself, which works for you, but also you give them a nice home for them to want to spend many years in. So what we've found is our tenant turnover is zero unless people break up. And at that point in time, you find a replacement, but it's just been an easier way to coast with the original objection. Mm -hmm. Where are you buying at? Toronto, as you know, is extremely expensive. And I buy for cash flow and Toronto is not giving me any cash flow whatsoever because you're looking at a million dollars for a property or at least half a million for a condo. So it's just extremely expensive. But that should not be an excuse for anybody living in an expensive city. If you look out even an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, there's still some really good opportunities. So I'm buying in a town called Brantford, Ontario, which is just a little bit west of Hamilton. And the house prices are so much more affordable. And the rent actually allows me to be able to get that cash flow. How far away is it from you? Let's just call it about an hour and a half. An hour and a half. You self-manage? I do. How do you self-manage an hour and a half away? It's just about having a good team of people. So a lot of the time, something will happen and you'll need a handyman or you can see me on video, but your listeners can't. Like I clearly cannot swing a hammer (laughs) and I probably wouldn't. You're not giving yourself enough credit. (laughs) Thanks. But having the right plumber, the right HVAC person that you trust. And when you have a good solid team, it's just a matter of, hey, something happens. You make a phone call and you go and and get them to take care of it. Everything mm-hmm. can be done electronically, payments can be sent electronically, and then I'll still do my biannual inspections and visits, but at least I can schedule that on my own time. Mm-hmm. So the moment where you went to the bank was approximately six years ago. So you bought your first place, what, five years ago? Mm-hmm. Okay, bought it five years ago. 
you've had multiple biannual inspections at your properties. What does your checklist look like for that inspection? Similar to like a move-in checklist. So what you would do when you have a tenant move in, you actually, and your folks can Google it as well. Just any move-in inspection that has the kitchen and then all the appliances and you just go through it with a tenant and you figure out, does this look like the same as the original? Has there been any damage since? And then just inspection. So I I would say, don't try to recreate it. Use the original Mm -hmm. checklist that you did from the start. Okay. As far as payments being sent electronically, what specific system do you use? E-transfer. It might be a little bit different. I don't know in the US, but it's just essentially they would email me the money and I would deposit it electronically in my bank account. Is that set up to automatically draw from their bank account or do they have to manually push the button to send it to you? They have to push the button to send it to me. Okay. Is that an option for them to have it automatically withdrawn? Yeah, that's also an option in Canada. So you could do different things. You could get it e-transferred. So what I'm doing now, you can have it so that it automatically gets withdrawn. Why wouldn't you do the automatic? Well, at the end of the day, I actually get paid a few days earlier with the e-transfer. I give them the options to do different things and it's worked out so far for us. Mm -hmm. So if it was automatic, then it would be a couple days later. Whereas if it's not, then you get it a couple days earlier and that's the only difference. Yeah, you basically get it instantly. So even if it's Sunday, the banks are closed, whatever it is, or a holiday, the e-transfers go through regardless. Hmm, That's magical. (laughs) All right. You've got seven homes. It sounded like six years ago, according to you, you're scraping by and then you got a house and then you got another and another and another. How are you paying for these homes? That's a great question. So obviously the properties that I'm buying are about 180 to about 280. That's the cost of the home. So 180 to 280? 180 to 280. Okay. Now I would say it's probably closer from 250 to 280. They're mm-hmm. a little bit harder to find at that price originally. But it's going to be a combination of using the cash flow from your tenants to help snowball the payments, but also appreciation. So one of the things that we've had in Ontario, specifically Southwestern Ontario, is quite a lot of appreciation. And a lot of that is also due to the immigration. So we have about 400,000 people coming from different countries a year, and a lot of them go to Southwest Ontario. So the Hamiltons, the St. Catharines, Brantford, including. And so it's really creating such a high demand and there's not a whole lot of supply for purchases, but also for tenants. So we've found that in the past five years, and it's still going, that some appreciation on the properties, you're looking at 20%, don't factor in 20% a year because you don't don't expect that to be every single year, but that's definitely helped. But the biggest thing I would also say is if you become a market expert, whatever market it is that you choose. So in my case, it's Brantford. Rather than having a house an hour from each other in different markets, learn a very small segment very, very well, and you'll be able to really jump on the opportunities. So I've been able to buy a lot of properties that were under market value, and within a year, I was able to actually refinance them and be able to use some of that money for the next one, and then still factor in if I'm taking a HELOC out, for example, still factor in the cost of the HELOC per month on the new cash flow. I love this. And I'd love to follow the breadcrumbs from first property, your down payment to 
now you're making an offer on the eighth because it sounds like you're buying under market. You're then doing a refinance, get the cash back out, and then you're rolling it into the next one. Is that basically the gist of it? That's basically the gist of it. Obviously, the first two are going to be the hardest for any. Right. Especially in Canada, like we don't have $30,000 houses or <laughs> anything like that. But the first one was actually 129000 which is unheard of. Like it's very, very hard to get that now. And it was really scraping pennies. So I ended up cashing out some vacation originally and trying to have a second job so that I can save as much. So it does take more effort for the mm-hmm. first one. And I would say the second one, I was still in the same situation. And with my job being in sales, I was able to get some commissions and I would save all my commission checks to be able to create that down payment. Afterwards, for example, the second house I ended up buying for $177,000 got reappraised about a year later for two thirty. So you've got- 177K purchase. Did I hear that right? Yeah. And appraised for how much? So it appraised for two thirty the year after. And right then, now, it's probably about 285 based on the current market. Mm-hmm, 285 How much did you put into it from year zero in the first year? In the first year, there was just a roof to be done about 2500 some railings. So some of the properties are not complete gut jobs, which is great. So that one I put in about five grand. Okay. So in the big picture, not a whole lot. So you're all in. At 183, a year later, it appraised at 230. I'm guessing since you appraised it, you were doing something with it. So you did a refinance on that one? Yeah, absolutely. So I do refinances on all the properties, and there's been some mortgage changes and rules starting in January this year. So I made sure that all my properties were actually refinanced beforehand. <laughs> Because you want to get money when you don't need money, right? Until you have a great deal to figure out how you're going to get the money. So pre-positioning yourself is definitely really important. So all the properties that we've had so far have been either refinanced with a HELOC or there's some that we did a BRRR. So you buy a house, you renovate it, you rent it, and then you refinance. And we've been able to pull a hundred grand in literally 13 months. But just to go back, I guess, to your question. So the second one is about 280. The third one we bought was 165 and then got that reappraised. It was about 230 as well. Now that one would probably be about 260. So this was mm-hmm. about a year ago that we got that one appraised. And then we bought one for 207, got that reappraised for 280. So if you buy under market and you're buying the first day that it comes out because you've got a good team in place that knows mm-hmm. what you like, I think that's what's been able to help us so far. Couple questions. Let's see. What was that second job that you took? I worked retail in a store. Nothing fancy, nothing good. What type of, what store? <laughs> it was called Accessorize Me. It was jewelry and clothing. And, yeah. What are your hours in your day job and what hours did you work at your second job? Well, originally, I worked for a photocopier company when I first started, Xerox. And that one was like... Seven- Not so much anymore, huh? <laughs> I don't work anymore. But good company to start. But I would say like 7.30 to about 5.30, those hours. And then weekends, Saturdays and Sundays, I would spend working at the store. Then I got a job at Sintas afterwards. That paid a little bit better as I was going through property number two and a half, three, let's call it. And that one paid me more commission. It also covered a little bit of a base. 
And I just worked my butt off to be sure that I was the number one rep when I was there to get all the bonuses and that kind of stuff. But Mm -hmm. I used to cash out a lot of my vacations. I don't have to be doing this forever, but in the beginning, I'd cash out some of my vacations to use that money towards the down payment. So you don't go on vacation days and in exchange, you get money from your employer. Got it. Cool. I haven't worked at a company that had that, but that's a pretty cool perk. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the increase in values of these homes. That's incredible. And you mentioned you focus on a very small segment and you find under market properties. For example, the 165 purchase appraised to 230 to now 260 or the other home 177 to one year later, 230 to now 285. So my question is, I'm wondering... Are they really under market or are you just in a crazy appreciating market? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that sometimes you can find something if you're ready to go quickly, but I also think there is an appreciation factor. But in the southwestern Ontario, Hamilton being a big city, I looked at the town next to it and I said in Brantford, like there's like that trickle down effect or that whatever it is that you call it, one city goes and there's a lot of construction, a lot of employment, et cetera, it's going to trickle out to the other markets. So I think part of it was being able to quickly act on something when you do see a property that's Mm -hmm. out, but also working with a realtor that's an investor, that's definitely really helpful. Somebody that's local that has some pocket deals and just knowing really the market so that you know when to pull the trigger on something. Mm -hmm. When a property comes out, what are the main things that you're looking for to determine if it's under market value? At this point in time, you can definitely look at some comparables. And what I'm looking for, like my specific market is three to four bedroom homes. And I do want them at around 250 or less. Mm -hmm. So when I can buy something at that price, actually my most expensive one so far that I bought was 238. I'm renting that at 1600 a month. But in terms of finding properties under market, I think it's just having a good team, a good realtor that's an investor that's able to go and visit things very quickly for you and Mm -hmm. make some offers. And sometimes I throw in some lowball offers and they come back at a higher price, but it's still pretty lowball. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is just being at the right place at the right time. The last house I bought was originally listed for two sixty five. Then it was 250 and they had two offers that were exactly what I had offered. I just ended up offering a month later in this case, and they took it because of the timing and the need to get out. So there might be a listener out there who's a numbers geek, and he or she might be saying, well, wait a second. As you continue to leverage up and do these cash out refinances, it's great because you get money back out, but now you got a bigger mortgage payment that you're paying every month. And with the number that you just said, $238,000 purchase price at $1,600 rent, doing that math, you know the 1% rule? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So it's 0.67 of a percent. So it's a little higher than half of a percent. So do these properties cash flow? And if so, how? They do, but Canada is a little bit different in Ontario. And so we're not going to get the 1%. We're not going to get the 2%. We're not going to get the 1%. So it's just a different market. So when I look at something that's 238 at 1600, 
even though it's 0.65, yes, it still cash flows. It probably doesn't cash flow as much as the US. But when we factor in that there is some cash flow, there is still some appreciation, probably more than in the US for sure in Southern Ontario. And there's still the mortgage pay down. I'm happy with those numbers. With the refinance approach, as you continue to refinance, pull cash out, if you're making just slightly a little bit of cash flow on each property because of the spread there, would you then in the near term start looking for more cash flowing markets like the US or somewhere else where you can build up the cash flow? That way you can match up the equity appreciation with the cash flow that you're getting somewhere else? Possibly at some point we'll go into the US, but I think right now for Ontario, it actually works out really well to be in Brantford. For the cash flow, at some point, I'm going to have to go somewhere else. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be four hours away. It's going to be 12 hours away, depending. There's still some markets as it gets harder in Brantford. So Brantford used to easily have properties at 170, 190, 200. Now, definitely, we're fighting a little bit more for them. So at some point, there will have to be a change of market. But at this point, I think I can still find some in Brantford for the next two, three years at a reasonable price for what I look for. Are all the homes separated from each other from a loan standpoint? They're all single family homes, yes. I'm wondering, worst case, the spread on these homes is not much from a cash flow standpoint. So someone moves out, then you lose your job, your spouse loses his job. And worst case, this will never happen, but just worst case, hypothetically, one house goes under and you have to give it back. Are they connected from a personal guarantee or anything, or are they all isolated? Some are in corporations, some are personally guaranteed. And the other thing to factor in is the vacancy rates in these markets, like Toronto, for example, is 1%. Um, wow. So when I, for example, have a property, I can fill it before the property closes. So I'll ask for like four showings and I'll have like 10 tenants come through. I'll put it on Kijiji. I'll have like 50 replies. It's a bit of a different market here. There's just so much demand and like very, very little opportunities for people. So they're A, staying longer, but they're also, in the last property I had, I had, I don't know how many applications, like 10 applications to pick from, and you have the ability to be very selective mm-hmm. and you can do it before they close. So if I was in the US, I might be a little bit more worried in some markets based on vacancies, but mm-hmm. here it's just, that's, we're having like an opposite problem. That makes sense. Yeah. And and not to try and create competition for you, but an approach could be a US person who wants to make potentially some good appreciation, do a cash out refinance quickly in one year and make a good return. Go invest where you're investing. And again, try not to create a lot of competition for you. Go invest where you're investing and then take that money, invest it back where they live for cash flow, and then just keep riding that until the music stops and then don't do it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. While you were talking, I got a text message that I got my eighth property. Just Sweet. Congratulations. Thank you. But just to go off of that, one of the, so I offered on two actually today. So one got accepted. One had five offers and literally went like way above asking price. So there's still have to be smart about it to look at your after repair value and what your repair costs are going to be and how long it's going to take to flip or if that's what you're planning on doing. Absolutely. One of the things that I say is there's not one single way to become wealthy in real estate. There's Mm -hmm. so many different opportunities. There's so many different ways. I personally have a full-time job that involves a lot of travel and so does my spouse. And so when I look at all the different types of real estate, 
buying and holding and doing it for the long term, doing some renovations, doing a BRR here and there doesn't create a whole other job for me. So in Canada, it's important that you get a T4 job to be able to get the best rates, the best with the best lenders. And so I do love what I'm doing, but it's definitely important for me to be able to not have a whole other full-time job at this point in my life until down the road, I'm replacing more of my income. Based on your experience, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? I would just say, don't come up with so many excuses and take action. And even if it's something small, just go do it. You're going to wish that you would have started sooner. So we'll take action. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Ready. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. You looking for a one-stop landlording software that helps you create listings, find and screen tenants, and accept rental payments while managing maintenance requests? Oh, by the way, it's zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever. Are you seeking investors, negotiating deals, and making things happen? The Seven Figure Sales Podcast has exactly what you need. Host Taylor Lote interviews real estate investors, sales trainers, and successful entrepreneurs to bring you their top sales secrets. Learn more at sevenfiguresalespodcast.com and listen on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, Sarah, best ever book you've read? I am a big fan of Don Campbell, and he is probably well-known in Canada. I'm not sure if you know him or not, but he writes a lot of books. And the one that I would say is the best one for Canadian listeners for right now is The Secrets of the Canadian Real Estate Cycle. Okay. Best ever deal you've done that we haven't talked about? December 2016, I bought a property sight unseen through my realtor. He's done a few already with me, so he knows what I liked. And it was 151000 And I was going to put in about twenty-five dollars to $30,000. But just to test it out, I put a feeler out on Kijiji slash Craigslist and found a tenant that didn't want anything changed. Loved the purple bathtub lot, loved the wall <laughs> ceiling, loved the ugly tiles on the floor. And long story short, so they literally moved in day one, broke up in September. We decided to actually renovate that place that was originally rented for $12.95. We put in about $25,000, $30,000 of renos, and now we're renting it at $15.45, and we were able to do a cash out refi on that and pull out hundred grand and net seventy in one year. In one year. I was waiting for the mic to drop, and there it was. <laughs> What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? I think the biggest mistake and I'll talk about Canadian experience, is not using a mortgage broker. Because in Canada, you need to structure your deals very carefully and using the right lenders at the right time in order to scale up. So I was originally going to the bank and working with the bank because that's where I was comfortable. That's where I have a checkings account, a credit card, etc. And that would have actually stopped me from being able to scale up properly. So when you work with a mortgage broker, they actually know which banks are a investor friendly, which one has the best rates, the best opportunities, but also which strategy you need to use so that you can keep going with different banks afterwards. Best ever way you like to give back. I don't know if you guys have this in the US, but I have a little sister. So I'm part of the big sisters, little sisters. Sure. She's awesome. And I've actually shown her how to calculate some cash flow, look at some properties. I've taken her to some real estate seminars and I told her when she's 18, she has to buy a property, but I love to help somebody that would never have that opportunity otherwise. And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? 
I do have a website. It's sarahlarby.com. They can email me at sarah with an H at sarahlarby.com, or they can also listen to my podcast called Where Should I Invest? And if they are in Southern Ontario, I actually host a monthly real estate group once a month we meet and this is going to be in the past, but March 22nd is actually our one year anniversary and we've got 205 people registered for it, which is really exciting. Wow. That's cool. What's the main attraction for the anniversary meetup? Well, basically we provide knowledge where like no sales tactics. Mm -hmm. It's just pure knowledge and networking. And we started a year ago and we said, Hey, it's been a year. Let's just celebrate and keep bringing the value. So it's just been amazing to be able to connect with like-minded individuals and allow others to connect with one another. Sweet. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. Clearly you've been going above and beyond what's typical and some ways that you talked about. One is getting another job while you had a job to make things happen, to get the first property. Two is creating that meetup that you just talked about. A lot of people just attend meetups. You create the meetups, you create a podcast. And as a result of those efforts and just that approach, seven homes and soon to be eight homes in approximately five years at a price point that is a healthy price point from American standards. So that's great. That's incredible stuff. Plus the refinances and the different ways you're approaching it. Very interesting stuff. So thank you so much for being on the show. And then also, lastly, thank goodness you convinced your spouse to invest in properties. And the tip for finding a tenant prior to closing on a property, that's something that we should all certainly do. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Are you seeking investors, negotiating deals, and making things happen? The Seven Figure Sales Podcast has exactly what you need. Host Taylor Lote interviews real estate investors, sales trainers, and successful entrepreneurs to bring you their top sales secrets. Learn more at sevenfiguresalespodcast.com and listen on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.